And let's begin by reading from the Word of God. And this morning I would like to bring you a word that is taken from Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, uh, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, beginning at verse 9, right? Verse 9. And I shall read that. And please take heed to the Word of God as it is read. I would like you also to... Uh, uh, be clear about what the passage is talking about so that you can follow a little bit of what I'm, I'm saying. Beginning at verse 9. He, that is Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other man, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humble, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. As far the reading of the word that endures forever. Let us pray, come. Our God and our Father who art in heaven, we thank you indeed that we have your word today to be a guiding light for us. And even as it is open before us this morning, we would ask, O Lord, that your spirit may indeed guide and lead us to an understanding of your word and to be able to apply it and help us to hear not the voice of a man, but you, O Lord our God, through your spirit speaking to us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. It was just past 9 a.m. in the morning. The temple morning sacrifices were just over. And into the men's court, before the brazen altar, two Hebrew men came to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Or in some of your versions, it's called the publican. The Pharisee was a regular at the temple. He belonged to the most highly esteemed group in the Jewish community. The Pharisees as a group, were religious and well-respected and regarded as the cream of Jewish society. The people had a positive image of them. They were not like what you think of them today, the bad guy in the Bible stories. You could count on a Pharisee to love the law and to uphold it. They were good in caring for their families, they were honest in business affairs. 
They contributed generously to the needy and tithed to support religious institutions. They were models of living well. Today, they will be like one of those religious activist groups devoted to upholding the tradition and orthodoxy of your faith, ones who are committed to their ministry and the mission of your religion, what we would say the poster boys of their faith. The tax collector, on the other hand, was a member of a class of people that had a reputation of being deceitful and dishonest in the community. They were regarded as the scum of the Jewish society. And this was the very, probably the first time for a very long time that this tax collector came into the temple. You see, to make a living, the tax collector bought the right to tax from the Roman government. Because Rome didn't care how much they charged, they could, they could overcharge as tax collectors so that they could pocket some of the money for themselves. Extortion was actually very much part of the tax collection business. And so they were usually corrupt and hence unclean religiously. In a word, they were disgraceful religious as well as political traitors to the Hebrew community. They were disallowed from public office and they were barred from giving testimony in court. And so in today's culture, the closest kind of equivalent that we have is they are like drug pushers and pimps, those who suck the life out of the community and made money out of people's bodies and make a living of stealing from others. But despite these moral differences, the two had one common goal. They came to worship and to pray to God. And then, as you look at this parable, you will also notice that there are some parallels between them. Both actually wanted to stand before God in the Holy Temple. They were desirous of God's fellowship. They were not simply seeking to pray to God at the spur of the moment, anywhere and any time. Both wanted to do more than this. They want to come to the temple and they want to enter into the very presence of God in his dwelling place. And the temple was the symbol of that, the Lord's presence. Then both of them, although separately, approached God with a prayer of thanksgiving, thanking God for his mercies. It was more than just a casual thank you, God. The commitment of going up to the temple also showed that they were concerned with acceptance with God and an enduring relationship with Him. And so standing, as the customary temple prayer posture was, the, prayer, the Pharisees thank God. Thank God for the great work God had done in His life. All right? 
confidently and with his head held up high he thanked God for freeing him from greed and selfishness that made him worthy to come boldly into the presence of God you see he did not simply say God look what a fine fellow I am you must really be happy with me he was serious about his deliverance he thanked God for having delivered and kept him from the ugly sins of the tax collector do we not hear this often also in our prayers when we thank God for God's grace in our lives and even to the Jewish year the holy inclusion of that phrase even like this tax collector seem appropriate for the prayer style is a typical prayer liturgy of the day similar to how we would say the Lord's Prayer is something that it's a formal thing that they do when they come to pray to Jehovah God but meanwhile on the other side on the far side of the men's court the tax collector were also thanking God thanking God for his mercies towards him he was thankful that even someone so unworthy and such a sinner as him could approach this righteous and this holy God and be able to come before him and ask for mercy he was thankful he was not left out in the cold outside the presence of God without hope and crying for a paradise that is lost and locked out of a home in glory that which he was taught when he was a boy thankful he was thankful he can still come bringing nothing but a repentant and a broken heart he didn't say much did he other than seven words God be merciful to me a sinner but his body language made up for all that short prayer he spoke volumes for this short prayer he stood far away even though he was in the men's court before the brazen altar he was far away from it and he was beating his breast and instead of looking up as the the posture was in prayer he looked down helplessly by the way just as a digression have you ever thought that how you present yourself before God in prayer reflect your attitude towards him because you can see very much what's in the heart of this tax collector anyway if today should you be asked to recommend to follow up or mentor a new believer would it be someone like the tax collector or the Pharisee I think it is a no-brainer isn't it and I think it will be the same for the here for those who are hearing Jesus parable when measured by the standard of that society the Pharisee was on the top of the heap 
But Jesus surprised everyone with what he said. When he assessed the situation, what did Jesus say? He called the tax collector righteous, who was known to be unrighteous. And the tax collector himself knew who he was. He's a sinner. So Jesus says in verse 14, I tell you that this man, that is the tax collector, went home justified rather than the other. Well, that's the Pharisee. And he didn't mention a thing about the man whom everyone would recognize as a righteous person. The tax collector was acquitted. His prayer was accepted by God. Wow, what a strange God this is, who accepts a deceitful, corrupt cheat of a tax collector and rejects a devout priest. See, when we see the, the moral contrast between the two, it is no longer so self-evident that Jesus should acquit and praise the tax collector, isn't it? tax collector was a corrupting influence in the community. And the Pharisee was the salt and the light of the community's faith. And I can understand why the, the Pharisee separated himself from the tax collector and saying, I am not like this tax collector. Wouldn't it be hypocritical, hypocrisy for him? Wouldn't he be insincere? if he said that there was no difference between them. It would be like saying that it doesn't matter if you keep the commandments or not. It would be dishonoring God and God's commandments. What Jesus told was really a reversal of logical human judgment. But the point is this. What have we missed? What we have missed that Jesus didn't? The clue I suggest lies in the way in which this one Pharisee and tax collector looked at God's mercy and how they thank him. The Pharisee looked at God's mercy sideways, from sideways. The Pharisees measure himself by looking at others around him when he tries to justify himself before God. And he chose the bad tax collector as a standard. Then, of course, the differences was drastic. Sure, the Pharisee know, knew he has faults and weaknesses, but by all accounts, he was more holy than most. So when we measure our standing by comparing sideways, it inevitably produces self-righteousness. That we are more godly, more sacrificial, more loving than most, more well-studied, more knowledge, and so forth. And this Pride of self-righteousness distorts how we see ourselves before God and man. 
self-righteousness cheats us into making us find security by comparing our lives with others and finding affirmation by seeing ourselves as better than most. Further, what accompanies self-righteous is, as Jesus pointed out in verse 9, contempt, scorn, mocking, disdain. 1 commentator called Bruna says this, the reason we enjoy gossiping and tearing down the weakness and failings of others is this, putting down others makes us feel good about ourselves. I am not so bad after all, because such things doesn't occur in my life. When we measure ourselves, by the weakness of our fellow men, we become puffed up. And we look down on them with disgust because we are more superior and more holy. And you see, but once the, the Pharisee slips into this proud way of looking at himself and a habit of comparing with others, he laps into complacency and self-sufficiency. Sure, he would say to himself, this is what God has made of me, but after all, this is what I am, yes? This is what I am. And so he saw himself as deserving the mercies rather than they are gifted to him. God's mercy was taken as a deserved reward for his faithfulness, for his doing his duties faithfully of fasting, of tithing, giving one-tenth of all that he owed, and his success of keeping himself pure from extortion, adultery, injustice, and even from influence from the tax collectors. He has made the mercies of God personal accomplishments. God's mercy was perceived to be an affirmation of his faithfulness. And his self-sufficiency has actually corrupted his prayer that is ridicule, is riddled with eyes. I've done this and I've done that. God's mercy made the Pharisee see himself self-sufficient and self-righteous. And on the flip side, the tax collectors look so differently at the mercies of God. He looked upwards to God and inwards with his burdened conscience. He had no interest in comparing himself with anyone or anything apart from God. There's nothing to compare. He measures himself upward. God himself was his standard and measuring himself by that standard, he was suddenly aware of how far, far away he is from God. But then, this was just the time when God was very near to him. 
and God is touching his lives. He dare not look up. You see, when only when God is truly seen for who he is, can we see ourselves as who we are. Here was a man humble at the sight and in the presence of the Holy God. He bowed down, he confessed, and he owned his sins, and he saw God's atoning sacrifice as a gift. And only God can give him that gift. The gift to an undeserving sinner like him. And so, God's mercies made this tax collector see his unworthiness before him. The two men thank God for God's mercy. One received the mercies of God and became proud, and the other received God's mercy and was humble. God's mercy made a sinner self-sufficient, but a saint unworthy. God's mercy made a sinner self-sufficient and a saint unworthy. And then, what we see is Jesus concluding also the parable, saying that those who exalt themselves will be humble, and the humble will be exalted. Verse 14. And the passive words, the verbs that were used, humbled and exalted, implies it is God who humbles and exalts. It is the sovereign work of grace. And also in the very statement, it points to the final judgment and our destiny in the next life. Whichever one of these two attitudes are reflected in our relationship with God and with our neighbours in this life, the opposite will characterise our status in the next. And this wisdom saying is repeated a number of times in the scriptures. You find it in Matthew 18 verse 4, Matthew 23 verse 12, Luke 14 11, and even, of course, in 1 Peter 5, 6, a verse I'm sure you'll be very familiar. And H. Robinson summed it up so very nicely, for me at least. He said this, Biblical hum humility is a Godward virtue. That humility is not a humility before man. It is not modesty. It is like the tax collector before God to be absolutely poor in spirit, completely empty before God. Further, Jesus revealed the purpose of this parable of reversals very much at the very beginning as he introduced the parable in verse 9. And he wants to shock those who were trusting in their own righteousness and despise others to respond to this challenge. 
a challenge for a genuine relationship with God. This parable warns against the pride of self-righteousness and self-exaltation that judges, that excludes, and attacks those who differ from us. Especially, and most of the time, it is done in the name of upholding tradition, orthodoxy, and purity of faith. Spiritual arrogance is actually a presumption. It assumes that we can stand in God's judgment seat and judge others. And that has been the cause of so much conflict and bitterness in the church. It is sad, is it not, when we see Christians defending the honour of a merciful God, not only running down others, but also denying those that disagree with them of forgiveness and of mercy. Of course, there's a way to uphold faith and doctrine, but it's never with contempt and never without Christ-like mercy, compassion, and humility. The arrogant defender of the faith needs himself to be touched with the reality and the experience of redeem redeeming grace. Remember, once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. 1 Peter 2.10 in essence, this parable challenges a proud, religious, and contemning faith devoid of the mercy of God. But dear ones, on the other hand, beware that we can just be as proud by being humble. In fact, making a show of humility is a disease of epidemic proportions in the church because it is a more acceptable form. Like the Pharisee, the tax collector could also pray, I thank you, God, that I am not so proud as this Pharisee. I am an extortioner, I'm unjust, and an adulterer. But we're all totally corrupt, isn't it? And that's what I am but at least I'm honest to admit it, and therefore I am better than most. I am not like that holier-than-thou, hypocritical, all-talk-and-no-action Pharisee. Dear ones, the devil can use all our virtues towards the end of making us proud. One can preach and teach the love of God in such a way as to despise those who do not understand it like we do. The disease of the tax collector's pride is particularly widespread among us who minister in the church. Dear ones, even testimonies of conversion or example stories of God's grace in our lives can be occasion for a tax collector's pride. You see, the more we trumpet and we boast of stories of one's wonderful experience with God, 
the more one's attention becomes focused upon ourself. And suddenly, the devil can turn the whole thing into a pious and a vain autobiography of us. And we can say, oh God, you must have found something rather special in me. Otherwise, you wouldn't have used me and given me this privilege above so many others. And so we go. The grace of God can be corrupted by spiritual vanity. And dear ones, that danger cannot be overemphasized. And so what is our response? Is Jesus calling us to humble ourselves before God and look to Him for our righteousness? True righteousness surrenders itself to God and rests in Christ's righteousness alone for our acceptance into His fellowship. It originates from a repentant heart. And to those who respond with such righteousness belong the assurance of Psalm 51, 17. The sacrifice acceptable to God is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart God will not despise. Can we be saved by grace and then feel so superior to another and then gleefully turn down or turn away from those who disagree with us. Jesus asserts that biblical humility leads to exaltation in the life to come. And spiritual humility is the way of life in the kingdom. For blessed are the poor in spirit, for Jesus is the kingdom of heaven. However, it is easier said than obeyed. We need to lean entirely upon the Lord to deliver us as we have seen how subtle a sin, the pride of self-righteousness and condemning others can be. God must do the work. God must humble us by His Spirit through His Word and not forgetting prayer. Don't say, don't say I'm not a, a Pharisee type. Because both these characters are present side by side in our lives and in the church today. We can be Christians and still be Pharisee When we examine ourselves like the psalmist in Psalm 139, Search me, O God, and see if there is any grievous way in me. When we do that, we will see the glimpses of this evil in our own lives. In fact, both these figures and attitudes exist in us from time to time. None of us, dear ones, none of us, and I will be the first to tell you that, can be exempted when the evil one is so active. 
We can be humble and lowly at one moment and next become proud and contemptuous, disdaining others, looking down on others because they are not like us or do things like us. But the joy is always to be reminded that with our God there is mercy and there is deliverance. And the tax collector's prayer show us the way out of pride and into humility. The Lord wants us to have a tax collector's heart, a heart sensitive to sin and totally dependent on the blood and mercy of Jesus. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Blessed are you, dear ones, when God humbles and purges you of pride and self-righteousness to rest completely in Jesus' righteousness. Blessed are you whom God humbles and purges of pride and self-righteousness. And let me conclude. Until we see ourselves in the light of God's holiness and God's gracious forgiveness in Christ, our self-images are built on comparison. Comparison with those around us in such a way that we are better than most and become self-righteous. But when we see our unworthy selves in the light of God's mercy, we are humble and we find our identity in the holy person and righteous work of Jesus. Hence, how we pray or do not pray can reveal whether we have been made righteous by God. Do you pray like the Pharisee or like the tax collector? Only Jesus knows. Only eternity will tell. And eternity will reveal surprising eternal reversals. Dear ones, we can sit side by side in the presence of God and yet be worlds apart simply because we are in need of spiritual humility. Forgiveness, to be able to be humble, to forgive, humble, to esteem others better than ourselves, humble enough to love. And Peter sums it up for me as well. He says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. First Peter 5, verse 6. Let us pray.